of Joseph, I was remembering that really it's a reference to the treachery that Joseph received at the hands of his brothers, and he was wiped out into oblivion, as it were. God knew he was living, but for all practicality, his family thought he was dead. If you know the story of the prince of uh, Egypt, you know that Joseph was sold into slavery. I trust you know enough of Joseph's story that to be aware that he rises up through the ranks, moving from the prison to the palace. There's lots of ups and downs in that over many years. But all this time, his father thinks that he is dead. He thinks he's dead. And when his brothers go down to Egypt in a time of famine, they discover to their shock, horror, and shame that the one standing before them dispersing grain was the brother that they had sold into slavery. They come back to, to Jacob, the father, and when Jacob heard it, he said, at first he was numb. He, he couldn't believe what he was, he couldn't process what he was hearing. And then after they repeated it a second time and said, come on, he's inviting us to go down to Egypt and, and have all of our needs met. And Jacob said, okay, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. He said, I will go and I will see him before I die. Now, again, that's one of those underdog types of stories of redemption and resurrection. And I see in this, in this communication about Joseph, a house of Joseph being back in the game, a reminder that God is able to take the dead, so to speak, and resurrect them to life again. That is a hope story that would fill all of our hearts with expectation. There is also in verses 19 to 20, another type of story that's being referred to, and that is the dispossessed, possessing their properties again. As I had mentioned earlier, Babylon had come in, leveled the city of Jerusalem, destroyed many of the communities in Israel. And there's this discussion here about a prophecy, rather, of people moving from a place of wilderness to a place of prosperity again, and in these verses, there are six times the occurrence of the words that they will possess the land again. Beautiful story of hope for those who have been exiled out of their, their heritage, their, their homes. I don't know if you've ever relocated in your life. Maybe you've only ever lived in Wayne County your whole existence. Maybe it would be hard for you to visualize being relocated and deprived of the memories that you might associate with your childhood. But to return to the land of your youth can be an incredibly strong desire. I know a lady who recently traveled to Toronto several times over the last few months uh, to help her 82-year-old mother 
prepare to move back to Israel. Can you imagine moving back, moving internationally at 82 years of age to, to go home and have that desire to, to, to die in your ancestral home? Uh, my wife's great aunt lived for nearly 60 years in New York City. Uh, but eventually, when she was in her mid-90s, it was a little bit too risky for her to be out walking the streets of New York. And the family had to make that difficult decision to relocate her out of the city towards Quakertown so that she could have 24-hour care. It was almost like an impossible transition for her at 96 years of age because all of her bearings, all of her landmarks were established and she didn't have to exert energy to, to function in the world that she knew, in the home she had. It wasn't very long before she passed after relocating out of her home. I bring all this to our attention because when Israel was removed from her home, all of her bearings, all of her memories associated with the land were gone. They carried within them the hope, the stories of time when they had been exiled in Egypt, and God, a mighty deliverer, brought them out of Egypt and placed them back in the land again. Those stories filled them with hope, and they rehearsed them and put it before their imaginations so that they could not despair, but they put their hope in God. There's a third story here, and that's found in verse 21, of the wrongfully enslaved rising to power again. There's a picture in this verse Verse 21 says, And Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Pictures of power and prestige are often associated with mountain ranges. That's maybe not how we today think of. But if you go and wander in the mountains, you cannot help but take in the majesty, and you can understand the symbol that's there. And the rivalry between kingdoms in the ancient world was very hot, but you know it's really the same today. It really amounts to that old nursery rhyme of, you know, who's the king of the castle, and everyone else is the dirty rascals. And I see this, 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 this rivalry between the mountain of Zion and the mount of Esau, and who's going to have dominance here, but there's a hopeful claim in it, that Mount Zion will rise to power, but the kingdom of it will be of the Lord. It really reminds me of the king, Babylon, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the one who removed Israel from their own land. He had a dream that was interpreted by, by a, man, a young man named Daniel. He dreamed of an image of gold and silver and bronze and iron and feet that are mingled with iron and clay, and, and each metal was seen to demonstrate or, or to, to represent a kind of kingdom that would come in time, represented by the man. And each, each of these succeeded one another until the end of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He saw a stone that was cut from 
a mountain. And it was cut from a, a mountain by no human hand. And that stone came through the air, and this is as dreams go. The stone struck the image, and eventually that stone became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Daniel said these words, he said, and in those days, the kings of the God, of, excuse me, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom uh, that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Now, the vision that Daniel saw and observed was a reminder that the kings of the empires in days gone by, that while they enslaved one another, they enslaved one another today, tomorrow, one day, they would be enslaved by another. But for Israel, there was a particular hope that was etched in this dream. It was a grand hope that one day they would rule again as saviors go up to Mount Zion to rule and that the kingdom would be of the Lord's, and it would be in existence forever and ever and ever. Now, I've, I've spent some time this morning talking about different kinds of stories that inspire hope from the Scripture. But there are kinds of stories that also reveal misplaced hopes. And I want us to see in the book of Mark how some of these stories go. There is often at times a narrative that goes, and we often anchor our hopes in it, as well as did Israel. They weren't necessarily wrong to hope for a renewed kingdom, but the way they went about desiring of that kingdom, they wanted national prosperity again, but they wanted it in such a way that, that it was absent of God's direct power. I want us to turn our Bibles to the book of Mark, and I want you to see with me in the sermon, in, in, the, in the triumphal entry, Mark chapter 11, the stories that I've shared this morning of Joseph and the stories of resurrection, the stories of renewal of one's homeland, rising to power again. All these stories caught the imagination of the Jews. And by the time Jesus of Nazareth was teaching, he was healing, he was doing incredible miracles. He was feeding thousands of people, and, and news was spreading. Hope was actually coming to a boiling point that this could be the one that would set Israel free. Yes, Israel was in her land again, but she was, she was uh, monitored by Rome. She was not free. She could not orderly carry out the ownership of her property the way she desired. And Jesus, Jesus knowing the stories of his youth, the stories that he had heard all of his life, does something absolutely astonishing. He deliberately acts out an ancient prophecy 
that the downtrodden Jewish people would instantly recognize as the Savior King who would go up to Mount Zion, he reenacted the prophetic words of Zechariah when Zechariah said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout out loud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I hope you're in your in Mark now, it's on page number 961. But in Mark 11, Jesus sent two of his disciples, in verse 1 it says, and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter into it, you will find a colt tied, one that has had no one ever sat upon it. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and it will be sent here back immediately. And as you read on, you hear the recount. It happens just exactly the way Jesus uh, projected to them. I personally believe that Jesus knew and had prior conversations with others to ensure that there would be that donkey nearby. It was right where it was supposed to be, when, and it was there, and they brought it to him. So he begins to reenact, actually, the ancient prophecy. Why do you think Jesus did this? Did he know that this would inflame the Jewish nationalism? Oh, oh, he did. He wasn't, he wasn't being simple. He wasn't being, he, he knew exactly what he was doing. But it also served to create unfulfilled expectations that would lead to his own crucifixion. Jesus acted out a storyline of hopeful expectation, but then chose to deliberately step back. I mean, you you read at the end of the account that when he went into Jerusalem, it was already late, he looked around, and then he left. What a great way to, like, put, like, remove the air from the balloon that's full. He knew what was in the human heart. And what's in our human heart is that we tend to put all of our hope on everything else but God. And when those material things that do captivate our heart fail, what comes? Fear, anxiety, depression fill our souls. See, the average Jewish heart longed for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That wasn't in their Torah, I know but it's on the heart of every human. And they understood that the oppression that they were receiving at the hands of the Roman tyrant was not life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
And in short, Jesus was exposing to the Jews that, that in the end, they really didn't desire God above all. They wanted the things that God could do for them. And Jesus was revealing that they had a misplaced hope. And in Mark's gospel, he highlights the strong emotions that Jesus and his, that the disciples of Jesus had, because Jesus had had three conversations with his own disciples, warning them that as he got closer to Jerusalem, he was going to be apprehended by the leadership in Jerusalem, he would be scourged, he would be hung upon a Roman cross, but then he would rise again. They stopped listening when they heard the word crucify. They couldn't imagine the resurrection because their minds were focused on the temporal and not the eternal. Jesus knew what was in the hearts of men. In fact, Peter himself pulled Jesus aside as Jesus is telling this story and says, no, 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 Jesus, this is not the story that's going to, like, bring other people into the pool. Like, Jesus, like, you're the Messiah, when does the Messiah become crucified? And Jesus says to Peter, he says, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, Peter's imagination was, was taking the message of the Messiah and already thinking about Jerusalem as the center of world He's thinking of the nations coming with tribute. He's thinking of the kingdom of the Lord now. They had a misplaced hope. But there were others who had misplaced hope too. And I think we often can have misplaced hope too as Americans because we have had such a long run of dominance in world history. And as much as we love our country, we need to beware that we, if we imagine a return to greatness, a return to greatness without God at the center, there will not be a return to greatness without God being central in all of our hearts. It will take millions and millions of us to prioritize fellowship with God, with His people, in a more consistent way than we do even now. There is a story that we all tend to get fixated with, and that is the hopeful return of our own self-sovereignty, not only the sovereignty of our country, but also our own self-sovereignty. We, we, we tend to desire the establishment of our own private kingdoms. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus showed us that what the heart loves most will capture its imagination. We, we, we love and we move on our desires towards that which we put all of our confidence in. And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus told us very plainly, He said, you can't love God and you can't love money. 
you will either hate the one, love the other, despise one, and, and, and love the other. And Jesus, in his ministry, confronted people with misplaced hopes, not just a misplaced hope in nation, but also in power that money can, can provide for us. And when money tends to, tends to dwindle and to wane, it actually can cause all of our hearts to become fearful and anxious. You know, ironically, we have on our currency, has anyone checked it lately? Is it still there? It says, in God we trust. Now, there was a recent Wall Street Journal poll which actually describes what Americans consider to be very important to them over a 25-year period. According to this poll, now it's a poll, but I, if we really look into our own hearts, we might actually see that some of this is actually true of ourselves. In this poll over 25 years, there seems to be a decline in patriotism, a decline in religion, a decline in a value of having children, community involvement, but the anomaly to all these declines is actually this increase in a valuation on money. Now, correlation is not causation, but there might be something here. There may be that as we place more emphasis and value upon money, other elements of greater importance fall by the wayside. Is there any wonder why our society is filled with so much fear and so much anxiety? On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus confronted a rich young man who said to Jesus, said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, well, you need to keep the commandments. And the man replied, well, I've done this from my youth. And Mark put it this way, how Jesus responded to him. He said, and Jesus looked at him and loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Why did Jesus do this? Why did Jesus ride that donkey? and then step back. Why did he intentionally put a stumbling block in the way of this man who seemed to be good, he seemed to be nice, he seemed to be kind? Jesus knew his heart. And this young, rich man began to imagine what his life would be like if he didn't have these sources of power. It filled him with fear. He became disheartened. He walked away. Just like the crowds that waved the palm branches, he walked away. Jesus wasn't trying to be mean. It says he loved him. He was telling him what he needed to hear. And Jesus loved him enough to tell him the truth. You can't love God, and you can't love money. 
you're either going to love the one and hate the other. Which one will it be? Now, I've shared with you the kinds of stories that promote hope, the kinds that reveal a misplaced hope, but I want us to end today by thinking about the kind of story that anchors our hope in God. And the greatest stories that mankind can generate actually correspond to the gospel. How is that? It's those redemption stories. They're the ones that remove people from absolute horror and put them in a a better place. It might be character change and development, someone being nasty and mean and then gradually changing to become joyful and hopeful. All of those stories do tug at our human existence. We love the story of It's a Wonderful Life. We love Cinderella Man. We love Joseph. We love David and Goliath. We love many, many more stories. But all of these are rooted in the greatest of stories, the redemption that came via the cross and resurrection. I think the question is, why do we love these stories so much? Is because we all have all kinds of fears in our world. If we we're honest with ourselves, we live with fear on a regular basis. And we experience, and we experience all kinds of trouble in life, and our hearts are inflamed, and so when we have a moment to kind of take our eyes off of our current situation, and we look, and our minds can think about a story that inspires, it takes us away from the, the immediate. And the reality is, is that the material world that we live with in its harsh conditions is not strong enough to guard our hearts. We want money to, to anchor and stabilize our world but when it starts to give way, we get anxious and fearful. It can't possibly provide the resources that we need. We need something else that will anchor our souls. Well, the Apostle John wrote these encouraging words in 1 John 4. He said, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love, we love because He first loved us. That last sentence, that last sentence is a story that we ought to wholeheartedly trust in. We must believe that He first loved us because that will anchor our souls. When troubles come, money deflates or inflates, and we don't have the resources we think that we need, we have a Heavenly Father who loved us first, and He is intent on redeeming us and finishing the story. It's the starting point that frees us from fear. It's the perfect love. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son 
that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's where hope is anchored. You can't save yourself. You can't have enough material resources to, to, to guard your own heart. You need the Lord, sovereign God of the universe to step in and redeem you. And that's the basis of the greatest story. And so many of the stories that we enjoy, we need a Savior who will go up to Mount Zion for us. He went up to Mount Zion. It didn't come by way of donkey, though, did it? It came by way of the cross. He was crucified outside the camp for us. And this was designed to be the solution for all of the suffering that we experience and all the fears that we, we carry. Thankfully, this world is not the end of the story. Jesus is coming again. He's going to rapture His people. He's going to bring them into a kingdom filled with truth and with justice and light. He's going to renew and recreate the world. That's where real hope is found. It's found in God, and that's what moves our imagination to dispel fear. What do you fear in life? You know, I personally have fears from time to time. I'm human. I'm preaching my, to myself here too. All of us have fears. But what do you do when they rise? Where do you turn? When I'm confronted with my heart looking in two different directions, I get anxious and I get fearful. I don't have a whole and I don't have a perfect heart. John says, whoever fears has not been perfected by love. And that is true. I've not yet been perfected yet but one day we will be perfected. And I have to turn my heart's eyes towards that truth that one day my heart will always rejoice. That's our hope. But this hope, this hope ought to motivate us whenever the fear comes to stop putting our trust, stop putting our trust in our own skills our own resources, our own government, or the pursuit of my individual happiness. To be perfected in love requires a daily putting to death of our fears, of turning our hearts and looking towards our Heavenly Father. You see, a heart that without hope, a heart without hope, permits its imagination to create dreadful, dreadful stories. A heart, though, that is filled with hope in God will find that their imagination projects stories of a better future. Paul, Paul said this, I am sure, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, 
nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus was the Savior who went up to Mount Zion. He demonstrated that He first loved us. So I want to encourage us this morning, as we meditate on the events of the Passion Week, Jesus presented Himself as the King, but He also did not pull up out, He pulled out all the stops. <laughs> he went to the cross on Good Friday, and on Sunday, He rose again. That is the hope that we carry. It's what we take to the world. Hope in God will move our imaginations to dispel fear. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for time in Your Word this morning. We, we know and trust that You are a good and gracious King. You are going to come and rapture Your church, and You are going to set up Your kingdom, and we look forward to the day. We even know that You rule even now. You allow the affairs